From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I mean, when you think of the music of 68, when that Live at Folsom Prison comes out, you're going to think of the protest music, perhaps, of Bob Dylan. And you might think of the Beatles singing, you know, All We Need Is Love. But what you see in Johnny Cash isn't just somebody who's verbalizing a vision of solidarity. You actually see him physically going and playing over 30 live prison concerts. And it's not just about our words, but it's boots on the ground, where you put yourself socially. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Richard Beck. He's professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, and he's a popular blogger and speaker. He's the author of several books, including Unclean, and his published research also covers topics as diverse as the psychology of profanity and why Christian bookstore art is so bad. He leads a Bible study each week for inmates at a maximum security prison, and today we're going to be talking about his recent book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. Richard Beck, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, I'm excited to be with you, David. So I would like to begin with probably one of Johnny Cash's most well-known songs. So there's there's a song that if you were to say, hum a Johnny Cash tune, I think everyone would go to, and it's the song, I Walk the Line. And I think everyone would have thought that they knew the story of this song. But when I was reading your book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, I was surprised to find out, first of all, that the version of I Walk the Line that we all know is not the version that Johnny Cash wanted to be released. So let's take a few minutes and talk about that story. How did I Walk the Line come to be recorded, and how did we come to hear it in the version that we currently know today? Well, it was the early sun years of Cash. This is the 50s, where he's starting to get really popular. And so he's out there touring with artists like Elvis, and his first wife, Vivian, I was watching and noticing how the young ladies were responding to Elvis and to her husband. So she expressed some worry about her young husband's marital fidelity while he was out on the road. And so wanting to reassure his worried wife, he wrote this ode to fidelity, which we know as I Walk the Line. And Cash's vision for the song was to play it as a very slow, romantic ballad. But the producer of Sun Studios, uh, Sam Phillips, was always kind of pushing Cash to put out kind of more rockabilly music for the young people. And so he kept demanding for Cash to sing it a little faster through the sessions. The Cash refused. But the very last take, Sam asked Cash to play just one version of it one more time at a fast tempo. And Cash did that, just assuming that Phillips would release the slower ballad. But when Cash heard the song come out on the radio in Memphis, uh, he realized that Sam pulled a trick on him and actually released the up-tempo version. Cash confronted Sam very angrily, but at the end of the day, I think they packed it up because obviously it became probably the biggest hit of Cash's career. Now, you've begun to give us a little bit of the backstory, and part of that is his first wife, Vivian, 
Johnny Cash wanted this song to reassure her that he wasn't out philandering and playing around with the ladies that came to his shows. First of all, was that correct? Was he actually walking the line? But that's the interesting thing about this song. So he, he expresses this fidelity to his wife, but anybody who knows the story of John Cash is that he was very unfaithful to her. He um, also experienced a, a long season of drug addiction that eventually led to their divorce. And, and so that's one of the things I reflect on in the book is how Cash, like many of us, wanted to make promises to keep up his end of the deal relationally with his wife, but also the spiritual allegiance he would express towards God but how his life and in his music, he is an example of how a lot of us are broken people and we live with lots of regrets and how we need something in our lives to kind of help us deal with the kind of the unfinished business that we often leave behind in our relationships and even in our spiritual lives. Well, but one of the things also that came out of that chapter from your book, Trains Jesus and Murder, which really surprised me, was that Johnny Cash thought of this as kind of a covert gospel song, and he, he wanted to be a gospel singer, and you mentioned Sun Records, even though Sun Records wanted him to be a rockabilly artist like Elvis Presley, he really wanted to be a gospel singer. And we'll get into in our conversation a bit about why that desire was there. But he described this in some ways as, first of all, a covert gospel song. Why, why was this a gospel song? Yeah, late in his life, Cash, in an interview with Robert Hilburn, who was a biographer of Cash, he revealed to Hilburn that he felt that I Walked the Line was actually his first gospel hit, a covert gospel hit, but his first gospel song. So the song has two meanings. He's pledging faithfulness to Vivian, but he's also pledging faithfulness and allegiance to God as well. And again, as I dwell on in the book, uh, that line that he pledges to walk for Vivian and for God is something that he really couldn't do. And I think that's where a lot of the humanness and identification a lot of people have with Johnny Cash is they saw him as somebody who really wanted to have high aspirations for himself, but they identify with his, his failures. Um, because they see in him that kind of mixture of saint and sinner, somebody who really wanted to walk the line, but somebody who struggled mightily throughout their life. And I think we can all see that in our own lives, where we have these aspirations, we have these promises we want to keep, but we also recognize that we're kind of broken people, and we need a lot of grace to make it through this life. Well, let's take a step back, because we've just said that I Walk the Line, even though it was a toe-tapping hit, it was Johnny Cash's late in life, he said it was his first covert gospel hit, And so the desire to be a gospel singer comes from a desire to do ministry, and a desire to do ministry that was embedded deep in his family history, and it has to do with a tragedy in part that occurred when he was, I think if I'm recalling, around six or seven years old. And so let's take a moment and look at that tragedy. What was it, and how did that shape his idea of his need to become a minister to fulfill a certain sort of promise that he had within the family? Yeah, he was actually a little older than that when this tragedy happened. He was around 13 years of age. But his older brother, Jack, who was around 15 years of age, was his very best friend. And he really looked up to Jack. One morning, Cash was wanting to ask Jack to go fishing with him, but Jack wanted to make some money for the family. And so he went to the school shop to cut some fence posts. But while he was cutting those fence posts, he was tragically dragged into the saw, which kind of cut through his abdomen. He lingered for a few days painfully and then and then died, which obviously traumatized the Cash family and Johnny Cash in particular because of how close he was to Jack. And, and part of the trauma was the fact that he felt throughout his whole life that he had, if he had just been able to convince Jack to go fishing with him that day, Jack wouldn't have died. And so 
that that isn't reasonable, but guilt and, and grief is often not reasonable. But he kind of took that upon himself. And later on, he discovered that his kind of father blamed him for Jack's death. I don't know if that makes sense either, but Cash carried the, the kind of the blame of his father, and that broke their relationship in deep places as well. Anyway, in processing all that tragedy, Cash wanted to carry on Jack's legacy because Jack was bound for the ministry. He studied the Bible every day, and he wanted to be a preacher. And so Cash was trying to figure out a way he can honor Jack's legacy, and he even toyed around with going to the ministry himself to carry Jack's message forward. But he ultimately decided that he would carry Jack's message and preach the gospel by singing gospel music throughout his whole life. So when he first comes to Sun Studios, he sees himself as a gospel music singer. That's what he wanted to do. And even though Sam Phillips really resisted that music, he wanted him to play more rockabilly music. Cash kept pressing Sam, and eventually he, he did. He kept his promise to Jack. He recorded gospel music throughout his whole career. Well, and that the music that you're talking about, I think we need to dwell on that for a moment, because what is going on here is that Johnny Cash and a couple of his friends are coming into Sun Studios, and at first, at least, they are not very good musicians. And you write in your book, Trains Jesus and Murder, that they kind of actually figure out a way to play that to their advantage, and they really pioneer a certain style of music. And so, first of all, how did they leverage their ignorance about music into being musicians, and what was the style of music that they helped to display to the world? Yeah, after Cash got out of the Air Force, he and Vivian moved to to Memphis, Tennessee, where Cash's older brother introduced him to Luther Perkins and Marshall Grant. And so the three of them just got together, and they created a little band called Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two. And they weren't the greatest musicians playing the stand-up bass, electric guitar, cash playing rhythm guitar, but they kind of worked out this very distinctive rhythm that is famous now called the boom-chicka-boom rhythm. And it sounds kind of like the clickety-clack of a railroad train. And you combine that clickety-clack sound with this kind of forceful bass baritone voice from Johnny Cash, Sam Sam Phillips heard in that combination something really very kind of distinctive. And when you hear those early Sun recordings, like at you know Folsom Prison Blues and I Walk the Line, you hear that boom chicka boom rhythm and Johnny Cash singing right in the microphone. It's just a really powerful combination um, that kind of set him apart from very from other artists that were on the radio at the time. And one thing also to talk about, in addition to that signature sound of the boom chicka boom chicka, there's also a signature look. And Johnny Cash was known throughout his life as the Man in Black, and he preferred when he performed to dress in black. And, you know, one might think now that that was a high-minded style choice, but for the time, with him and his band, the Tennessee Two, it was more sort of a, a process of elimination, wasn't it? What was it that led them to wear black during those first performances? Yeah, they got their first invitation to play at a church, uh, some gospel music, and they were trying to figure out what to wear for the very first concert, and the only shirt color they all had in common was black. And so they wore black to the church concert, and Cash made a joke at that time, says, well, black is better for church. And he kind of made that joke throughout his career um, about his preference for black attire. What's interesting about that is that a lot of people have associated the man in black as kind of an outlaw image, because Cash was a part of those that early outlaw movement with Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. But as I talk about the book, in the 70s, he kind of reinterpreted what the man in black uh, meant, and uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. 
Well, and so you just made a, a reference to outlaw country, and for listeners who may be younger and have not lived through what that meant, what do we mean when we use that term outlaw country? Well, it's just a style of country music that kind of were, were lyrics and settings and, and content that, that had a little bit more of an antisocial component to it, a little bit more of a rebellion, uh, running up against the law, kind of um, fights and bars, and so kind of cultivated kind of a darker country image. So a lot of the early country music was kind of your Roy Rogers kind of appeal, kind of the good American boy. But the outlaw movement was singing music about kind of maybe the shadier and darker elements going on in society. There's a line from Folsom Prison Blues that says that Johnny Cash, he sings, I, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. We don't believe that Johnny Cash actually shot a man. Uh, we understand that that's art speaking at that moment. But when we talk about outlaw country and the kind of uh, wild edge of country, some of the other things that Johnny Cash sang about, the drug use and all of that, that was real, wasn't it? Yes, um... I think in 1956 or seven, Johnny Cash took his first amphetamine pill. Uh, in the early days of rock and roll, amphetamines were pretty common, and uh, artists would, because they were driving themselves from gig to gig through the night, they would pop amphetamines to stay awake at night, and they would pop pills before the show to give them an energy boost. So Cash started taking amphetamines to drive through the uh, through the night to concerts. Started popping pills to put on good shows when he was sleep-deprived, but that became obviously a habit. And if anybody's seen the movie, I Walked the Line, they kind of know this story pretty well. But for the next 10 years, his drug addiction got very severe to the point where his band members and family just really thought he was going to kill himself eventually. And uh, concerts were canceled. His marriage deteriorated. So yet, the next 10 years into the mid mid-50s to the mid-60s were some of the darkest years of Johnny Cash's life. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Richard Beck. He's professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. He's a popular blogger and speaker. He's author of several books, including Unclean, and his published research also covers topics as diverse as the psychology of profanity and why Christian bookstore art is so bad. Beck leads a Bible study each week for inmates in a maximum security prison, and today we're talking about his recent book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel of according to Johnny Cash. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Richard Beck. He teaches psychology at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. And today we're talking about his recent book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. Well, one of the things that struck me so much from your book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, is this idea of solidarity and the notion of the solidarity of the man in black. And there are several chapters where you're 
You're examining what that means. And so first and foremost, when you use that word solidarity, you're meaning something very specific. And help my listeners understand what this word solidarity means in this context. Well, I think it means two things in the book. Uh, One is by solidarity, I mean standing with somebody in support. And that can be politically, where we stand in solidarity with people on the margins or people being oppressed. And in the book, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash, I talk about how this solidarity is also a divine solidarity, where we find Jesus standing with and among the forsaken and the lost and the marginalized, not just in the Gospels, but in our world today. And so I use the music of Johnny Cash, the way he used his music to stand with people who are hurting, to stand people who have been marginalized, who have been left behind, as an example of this kind of political, but also this spiritual solidarity. One of the communities that he very much stood in solidarity with were the communities of imprisoned persons, so inmates and people in federal penitentiaries. Why did he start doing that? And what, I guess my first question would be, what was it that started him thinking about prison life and getting involved in eventually playing concerts in prisons? Well, I think his early hit, Folsom Prison Blues, was a song that resonated a great deal with incarcerated populations. So you, you read that line uh, from the song, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. But if you listen to the song, it's really a blues song about an incarcerated singer and the alienation and the loneliness of his life as he listens to a train passing by. And I think the pathos of that song resonated so much with incarcerated populations that they became some of his biggest fans and began writing him. And eventually, uh, in the 50s, he took uh, those invitations to do his very first prison concert in Huntsville, Texas. And it was the, the concert was almost a disaster because a thunderstorm broke out and all the electricity went down, all the implications. The prisoners just were so enthralled with his music. They defied orders and went up to the stage so they can listen to the unamplified music. And the enthusiasm and the gratitude that Cash felt from that audience just really affected him, changed his heart. And so that started a habit of his. Uh, over the next kind of 10 years, he played like over 30 concerts in, in prisons for no compensation. And it eventually fueled uh, his activism, where he actually went before the U.S. Senate Um, asking for prison reform. And so I think it was just that experience in that very first concert prompted by the invitation by those prisoners who uh, felt themselves seen in that that early music of his um, Folsom Prison Blues. You open your book, Trains Jesus and Murder, with an image of listening to Folsom, or actually listening to the album Live at Folsom Prison, as you are driving to a prison. And so for the sake of my listeners, let's take a moment and talk about what are you doing going to prison? What is your role there? Yeah, about eight years ago, I started leading a Bible study for about 50 inmates at the maximum security uh, French Robertson unit here north of my hometown in Abilene, Texas. And at the time, uh, I wasn't really a big Johnny Cash fan, but uh, one day bought his um, iconic Live at Folsom Prison album just because I thought it would be something interesting to listen to on the drive out to the prison. So I popped it in and would listen to that live concert back and forth from my study. And that that began my love affair with Johnny Cash because I felt... In that concert, and in, in the reception that you can hear in the cheers of the inmates, their gratitude 
I, I think in that response and what Cash was doing for them by honoring them, by going to them and um, recording live there and bringing their voices kind of out into the free world, I just felt there was a lot of gospel in that. And it resonated a great deal with what I had been experiencing out of my Bible study. And so that just drew me deeper into the music of Johnny Cash. When you say that there was a lot of gospel in that, I, I think that probably people might hear that in a couple of ways. They might say, well, does that mean that, that he was just singing gospel music? But I don't think that that's what you mean. What do you mean when you say the word, there, there was a lot of gospel in that? Well, I think two things. One, the conversation about solidarity. It wasn't just that he was singing gospel music to them. It was that he was going there and being with them. To me, that crossing that sociological boundary to go into the prison, I think, is a divine movement. I think that's what we see in the Gospels, where Jesus moved to the margins and stood with and was amongst those people. So just his presence in that space, to me, is is a Gospel sign. And the other thing about it, I would say, is that it isn't just that he's there, but the, the way the prisoners received him, grace comes to Johnny Cash in that moment. So a big theme of the book is the way grace comes to us in unlikely people and in unlikely places, because Johnny Cash stood at a very precarious moment in his career when he got on the stage at Folsom Prison. His drug addiction had been mastered a little bit, but his sobriety was pretty fragile at the time. In addition, his career was on the downswing, and there were rumblings in Columbia Records about, you know, letting him go from the label. So when he got on the stage at Folsom Prison, his life was at a crossroads. And depending on how that concert goes, Cash's life could have turned out very, very differently. But in the reception he received from the prisoners, and that's really what makes the album so iconic, they functionally save him. They give him what he needs in their reception, puts his life, his sobriety, his spirituality, and his music on the course that would he would take you know, through the rest of his life. So in that sense, those prisoners are the ones who are saving Johnny Cash. And that's a gospel moment, too, because Jesus says in Matthew 25, you know, if you visit the incarcerated or if you clothe the naked or uh, shelter the homeless, that you are doing those things for Christ. So Christ comes to us in these unlikely people, almost in disguise, if you will. That's actually a theme that you bring out in your book, Trains Jesus and Murder. You you make the statement at several points that solidarity is really not something that we do for others, but rather that this is something that happens to us in the process of standing with people, that that in in a weird way, it's not about us. It's about something greater than us in those moments. And if I'm hearing you correctly, Johnny Cash went to the prison not to save the prisoners, but to literally be physically with the prisoners. Is that right? Yes. He, he went there looking for redemption in many ways and, and found it, again, amongst these unlikely people. So typically we like to work with very clean distinction about who is the saved and who is the lost, who is the saint, who is the sinner, who is the savior, who is the one needing to be saved. But solidarity muddies those waters. Uh, It becomes a much more mutual interaction where in the process of standing with people, I'm also receiving grace in that exchange. And so I like to see it more as an economy of gifts that are exchanged back and forth across that boundary. And so it's not just a one-sided 
act of benevolence on my part to a needy person. It is rather to open myself up to a relationship where I can be saved and affected and, and receive as much as I give. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Richard Beck about his recent book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. Well, you make a couple of observations in your book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, that pertain to this idea of solidarity. And I'm going to paraphrase them, so forgive me if I get the words wrong, and please feel free to correct me. At one point, you say that you have a lot of progressive friends, and where they may talk about having, you know, connection with the poor and helping the poor, they are not the ones that you oftentimes see bringing the poor into their homes, breaking bread with the poor and giving the poor company, uh, giving the homeless company. You also make the observation that uh, at the same time that Johnny Cash is going into Folsom prison, this is around 1968, there's a lot of pop music that is talking about peace and love and all of that. But what you actually see in Johnny Cash is not talking that talk, but rather walking that walk. And I found that to be a very profound insight and one one that has stuck with me. The notion that somehow Johnny Cash was putting boots on the ground in a way that maybe some who I think we would more readily identify with the idea of being there for the poor, being there for the homeless, failed to do. And first of all, do I have that image correct or did I get it did I get something wrong in, in the conveyance of that? No, I think that's right. I mean, when you think of the music of 68, when the Live at Folsom Prison album comes out, you're going to think of the protest music, perhaps, of Bob Dylan, and you might think of the Beatles uh, singing, you know, All We Need Is Love. And so you kind of look back at that music as, you know, expressing this kind of beautiful vision of human community and protest music. But like I like you mentioned, you know, a lot of us, it's kind of easy to love people, especially on social media. You know, I can talk a good game on social media and and write on Facebook or retweet things that kind of get me on the right side of history. But what you see in Johnny Cash isn't just somebody who's verbalizing a vision of solidarity. You actually see him physically going and playing, you know, like I said, over 30 live prison concerts. And so to me, I... That's what I focused on there. It's not just about our words, but it's where you, yeah, boots on the ground, where you put yourself socially, that I think is really where solidarity cashes out. But what's interesting is that in addition to the prisoners, he also took on a variety of other populations, I guess, with whom to show solidarity. And one that I found interesting and didn't know much about was the Native American population. And in fact, he released an entire album of songs that were written about and written by Native Americans. And that's just a fascinating story for me. So tell me a little bit about how that album came to be, and then I'll ask you a couple more questions about it. Yeah, Johnny Cash was very interested in the Native American experience and Native American history, and obviously that exposure sensitized him to the plight of Native Americans. And so he came up with the idea of a concept album devoted to the Native American experience and Native American protest. And so he wrote and performed an album called Bitter Tears, which is all the entire album is devoted to the Native American experience. And as you can tell from the title, Bitter Tears, it's expressing the pain and the exploitation the Native Americans experience at the hands of the kind of expanding American empire. And uh, it was a it was an album that struggled to get a lot of airplay. It, it's a hard album to listen to, especially if you have benefited from the status quo. 
but he fought tooth and nail to get airplay for that album. And I, I think it's outside of his prison concerts, live at Folsom Prison and live at St. Quentin Prison, I think Bitter Tears is perhaps the quintessential expression of Johnny Cash's ability to express solidarity with the oppressed. Well, there's one single, The Ballad of Ira Hayes, that comes from that album, Bitter Tears. It was the first single released from the album. And you write in your book, no DJ would touch it. And he actually ends up taking out a full-page ad in Billboard magazine. And he calls out the music industry, and he calls out the DJs for almost a failure of courage. And what is it that he says in that ad, and what are the repercussions, what are the results of him taking that kind of stand? Yeah, I think the opening line of the billboard ad was like, DJs, radio managers, where are your guts? And yeah, that's pretty harsh to take out, kind of call out that whole industry. And the pushback was pretty significant. He burned a lot of bridges, spent a lot of his social capital to get airplay for that album. And I think the takeaway point there is that, again, solidarity can be costly. Sometimes when we stand with people we're going to pay a social price for for standing with them. And it's not always an easy thing to do. And there might be a price to pay in doing the right thing. And so I think that that whole hit he took in pushing industry and kind of shaking up the Nashville music establishment is a great example of how he wasn't just an artist that was saying the right things, but he was actually spending some of his social capital to, to do the right thing. Well, we've been talking in this portion of the conversation about solidarity, and there's a line from your book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, that really stuck with me. And the line is this. It says, our trouble is that we want solidarity and salvation to be the same thing, but they're not. And I would love if you would just take a moment and help unpack that statement for me. First of all, kind of what's the context of that statement, and what does that mean to you to say that salvation and solidarity, we want them to be the same thing, but they're not the same thing. The context is, after talking about the album Live at Folsom Prison, I spend time on the on the concluding song of that concert, which is called Greystone Chapel. And that was a song that was written by a Folsom inmate, Glenn Shirley. And so I think it's a beautiful moment. It might be the most iconic moment of the concert, where Cash elects to end the concert with a song written by an inmate. So again, a great example of solidarity. Well, Cash met Shirley after the concert and was uh, moved by his story and getting to meet him. And so he wanted to do something tangible. So he began working to help get Glenn Shirley parole. And he eventually does. He pulls some strings and Shirley gets out. He gives him a job uh, recording music and traveling with his concert. But Glenn Shirley was a kind of an unstable guy and eventually made some threatening remarks to the members of the band. And so Cash reluctantly had to let him go. Shirley kind of bounces around, um, gets back into drugs, and eventually commits suicide. And I use that story to kind of talk about this contrast between saving and solidarity, because we look at that moment at Folsom Prison where he reaches down from the stage and he shakes Glenn Shirley's hand after singing his song as kind of the quintessential Johnny Cash moment where he's standing with the marginalized. But when you know the whole story, Glenn Shirley's story doesn't end very well. It ends with a lot of sadness and, and regret. And I think a lot of us, we avoid solidarity because it makes us vulnerable to that heartbreak that when we stand with people, we quickly realize that we can't save people. 
we might go to them and stand with them with the hopes that we could save them. A lot of us kind of struggle with Messiah complexes. We are kind of the heroes of our own story. But in reality out there, when you stand, especially on the margins of society, that there's going to be some heartbreak. But that's just the price you pay for for standing with and being with people. And so I try to spend time talking about how Solidarity involves kind of faithfulness and accompanying each other through thick and thin. And sometimes we don't get the happy ending, but the price of solidarity is worth paying because that is where God is and that's where we need to be, even with that emotional price tag. You, you've just pointed out that Johnny Cash throughout his career sang the songs of other songwriters. And so you mentioned just now Glenn Shirley. Also, probably listeners will recall that Johnny Cash made famous a song by Chris Christopherson called Sunday Morning Coming Down. And so I'm used to thinking about the notion that Johnny Cash sang other people's songs and then he sang Johnny Cash songs. But there's a distinction that you make in your book between, and I found this fascinating, between Johnny Cash and J.R. Cash, his birth name, and that some of the songs that Johnny Cash sang were Johnny Cash songs, and some of them were J.R. Cash songs. And help me understand what you mean when you're making that kind of distinction within Johnny Cash's own songwriting. Yeah, I think every artist struggles with saying something truthful and meaningful versus saying something commercial. And that's a difficult balance. You need to be commercially successful to get your message out there and to pay the rent. But as an artist, you also want to have music that expresses kind of your deepest truths. And so Cash would describe that contrast between a Johnny Cash song and a J.R. Cash song. So like you mentioned, J.R. was his birth name, and he was called Johnny by Sun Records when he became kind of their rockabilly star. And so Cash kind of used that distinction. Johnny Cash was the persona. Johnny Cash was the guy that was going to try to write the next big hit. So commercial songs that he wrote, songs that didn't mean a lot to him, but maybe were going to pay the rent, he would call those Johnny Cash songs. But songs that meant a lot to him, and especially a lot of these songs about solidarity, he knew they weren't going to sell big, like Bitter Tears, okay? A, a, A song about Native American protest songs, is not going to sell a lot of records. You're not going to pop in the ballad of Ira Hayes and dance to it. But that is music that meant a lot to him. And so he would call that music J.R. Cash songs because it would kind of take him back to his roots, to his truest identity. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Richard Beck. He teaches at Abilene Christian University. We're talking about his recent book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road Podcast, It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. 
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking to Richard Beck. He is professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University, and he's the author of several books. Today, we're talking about his most recent one, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, the Gospel According to Johnny Cash. You give a really vivid portrait of the many sides of Johnny Cash in this book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder. And so Johnny Cash starts out as a person who is wounded by these tragedies of his childhood, the, the gruesome death of his brother and the fracture that that creates in his family life. And then he goes into the military and he comes out of the military and he starts on a musical career and his wife, Vivian, at the time wants him to settle down at home and he wants to be out on the road. And eventually that leads to a dark journey of drugs and addiction. And then he comes out of that and he really becomes a man who is really shaped by the wounds, but also by the hope of his Christian faith. And there was one particular moment that just really floored me, and that was when a rock got thrown through the window of the Cash home. And just talk to us a little bit about that rock, where it came from, and what Johnny Cash did next. Yeah, that's a story recounted by his son. Um, it was actually in a, in a car. They were in a, uh, a car being chauffeured around in New York City in a, in a kind of a crazed, uh, half-naked very drunk or spaced out young man threw a rock through the car window and just shattered glass all over June Carter, who was Cash's wife at the time. And so anyway, Cash grabs the rock and he exits the car and he puts the rock out in front of the guy and says, is this your rock? And the guy's kind of spaced out and out of it. And John Carter writes about at this moment, he thinks his dad's going to hit this guy. Maybe hit him with the rock. Cash recognizes the guy's out of it, and he hands the rock to him. He says, why don't you put this back where you found it? And then he gets back in the car. And when June's like, well, what was going on with that guy? And he said, he's spaced out, June. He doesn't even know where he is. And she goes, well, let's go pray for him. And so Johnny Cash and June get out of the car, and they sit down with the man, and they ask to pray over him. And he says yes and starts to cry. And John Carter Cash shares that story just saying, because that just represented his dad, that his dad was a very kind and gentle man. And I think that's the other part of Johnny Cash's personality. You kind of hear the stories of kind of him being kind of the bad boy or that outlaw image, but in that same person, in that same heart, was the guy that would go pray over the man that just threw a rock through his car window. And I think we're all like that, right? We're all these weird mixtures of tenderness, and cruelty and meanness, but also compassion. And we all, we hold all those contradictions in our hearts. Well, and that struck me so much because of exactly what you just said, that that when we think about the gospel touching the life of Johnny Cash, it's easy to think of it as a kind of a, and we oftentimes think about this, like a light switch, like, oh, he gets Jesus and suddenly everything's better. And it's not. He falls off the wagon so many times. He he ends up kind of spiraling, and it's not an easy road for him. Nevertheless, there are these moments of grace when you think, and this was his son's kind of estimation, you think that he's going to lash out as the person that he used to be, and instead he he shows the person that he has become. That was just a profound image for me. And I wonder, as you are driving to the prison, as you're listening to, you know, live at Folsom Prison, as you're driving to work with inmates to help them study the gospel, do you see 
the light switch or do you see that spiraling sluggish walk towards grace? Which is which is the better description for you of the people that you work with? I think it's a mix of both. Sometimes I think the light switch, um, and we talk about this out of the prison, is that kind of weekend moment where they go to church or they go to um, an experience and they experience grace for the first time. And we want to then kind of put those testimonials of like, hey, I found Jesus on the stage and people kind of tell their story. And so I think those stories are important, but I think they just begin your story. They, They don't end your story. They begin your story because when you see these guys six months after their conversion, years after their conversion, right? Christianity isn't just having one mountaintop experience. It is 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, a lifetime of years of kind of staying true to that. And and if anybody's honest about that journey, it is an up and down roller coaster ride. And so we, we enjoy and like to elevate the the great big testimonials. But what I see out of the prison is that day-to-day struggle to stay faithful. And I am constantly encouraging guys every week because some guys come in and they have had a good week and God has been faithful to them. But more often than not, I'm going to sit down with an inmate and talk about how hard the week was and that he took one step forward, but two steps back that day. And we have to kind of begin again and so I just try to be kind of a faithful witness to kind of keep breathing life back into them because that's what that's what's going to sustain them. That kind of daily cups of cold water, of encouragement, of receiving the manna from God over and over again daily. That is going to make this journey for them sustainable, especially given the kind of the brutal environment in which they live. You mentioned in the book trains Jesus and murder, that the 1980s were sort of the lost years of Johnny Cash and lost in part because he didn't have a recording contract. Towards the end of his life, he ends up kind of having a resurgence and a new audience. And part of this is due to the intervention of a very kind of famous and also infamous producer by the name of Rick Rubin. You mentioned towards the end of your book, uh, you you do a quotation from uh, Robert Hilburn, and Hilburn says, quote, part of Rubin's genius was that he didn't simply portray Cash as a rebel. He wanted to break through the public image of Cash as a superhero by capturing his human side, the struggle and the pain and the grit, unquote. I thought a lot about that quotation because it's a double-edged sword, because you're talking about Rubin getting at Cash's vulnerability, but he's getting at Cash's vulnerability to make Cash into a different kind of product, isn't he? I mean, Rubin is trying to sell records, and so... As he's trying to get to this authenticity below the public image of Johnny Cash, he's bringing out a different public image of Johnny Cash in order to make Johnny Cash into a different kind of product. And I wonder what you think about that. No, I think that goes back to what we had said earlier about that balance between an artist trying to be truthful and authentic and an artist needing to be commercially successful. And so I think there's no doubt that Ruben has his eye on record sales. But I think what most moves us artistically about the American recordings albums that he recorded with Rick Rubin was the vulnerability that in there, that's the tension, right? That that what attracts us to that music, why we would buy that album is because it is speaking uh, truth to us. Uh, People aren't going to pop in some of those older cash albums because they're looking for something to play, you know, at a dance club. This, this music of the Rubin years is speaking kind of deep, 
truths about human life, especially with the perspective of an aged Cash looking back over his life. So I think it's I think it's both, right? I think Ruben wanted to you know sell some records, but I think the reason why those records uh, have meant so much to people is because they're also true, and that's kind of the complexity of commercial art. So towards the end of your book, you do a line by line examination of a song by Johnny Cash called When the Man Comes Around. And that was fascinating to me because I've heard that song many, many times and I've tapped my foot to it many, many times. But you go through and you show how almost every word of that song is dripping with biblical reference. And I wonder for my listeners if you would not mind just giving us a quick tour through that song when the man comes around just to kind of let us know kind of what Cash is doing with the lyrics of that song. Cash read the Bible almost every day of his life. And one of the uh, points I make in the book is that only a person that was steeped in biblical and especially the apocalyptic imagery of Scripture could have written that song. Because you're right, it is just every line comes from a biblical illusion or a biblical image, most of them from the book of Revelation. But there's also references that Jesus uh, used his parables. He talked about the virgins trimming their wicks, which is a reference to Jesus' parable, the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. So it's an imagery of being prepared and ready for the arrival of Christ. And when he talks about the man coming around taking names, it's a reference to the idea in Revelation where a book of life will be there, and your name will be written in the book of life, and those whose names are found there will be welcomed in, you know, to heaven. Um, but there's also references to judgment as well, and, and drinking the cup of God's wrath. And it just goes on and on. The idea that the, the kings casting their crowns on the ground um, in the book of Revelation, imagery of Jacob's ladder ascending and descending from heaven. Every phrase, every line is rich with biblical allusions. Well, and as we think about the way that he is bringing these things together towards the end of his career, that was nothing new. He wrote a book about the Apostle Paul. He wanted, with his wife June Carter Cash, for many years to make a movie about the life of Jesus Christ. What do you think, having now looked at the life of Johnny Cash in this encyclopedic fashion, what do you think that it was that most touched Johnny Cash about the story of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you were to boil it down to one sentence, what was it that touched the life of Johnny Cash in that story? Well, I mean, he obviously grew up Baptist, and so Jesus was a part of his early upbringing, but he had wandered away from his faith, and especially during his years of drug addiction. And it's when, I talk about in the book, in one moment he'd wandered off into a cave system, Nicky Jack Cave, with suicidal thoughts. He just wanted to go into that cave and die. And deep in that cave, the voice of God comes to him and, and says to him, I am still here. And I think that is what he wanted to talk about for the rest of his life. That when he was at his lowest moment, lying in the darkness, just wanting to die, God comes to him. And that even though Johnny Cash couldn't walk the line for God, as he had promised, God was always walking the line for him. It was an important moment in his spiritual journey, and I think for the rest of his life, he wanted to just praise God for the grace that found him there, and really the grace that never let him go. Well, Richard Beck, I'm wondering, as we come to the close of our conversation, what's your favorite Johnny Cash song, and why? 
Oh, that's a good question. I think uh, Folsom Prison Blues, I think, is my favorite song just because I just love the song. I love the darkness of that offhanded reference to murder. But I also think it is the kind of the iconic Johnny Cash song. It's It's got that outlaw aspect to it. But in the very same song, it's really a song about looking for grace and God coming to us in our loneliness. And so, yeah, um, uh, Folsom Prison Blues is my top Johnny Cash song. I'm struck by that because the the context of that is, you know, he ends up going to Folsom Prison and playing this iconic concert that is recorded in the Live at Folsom Prison album. And you, you say, write it in the epilogue of your book, you talk about the fact that you use this phrase, the cheers of the forsaken. And when I, when I read that line, I had this mental image of those who had been locked away and who... And you mentioned in the book that the, some of the people that you work with when you go to minister in the prison, you're sometimes the only social contact that some of these people have because they have no more contact with family. They have no more contact with friends. And I think about what it means to be forsaken. And you mentioned Johnny Cash kind of crawling away into a cave and, and wanting to die. I think sometimes we can make each other feel so very lonely and so very lost. And those moments of contact and those moments of, of joy when we are in those extreme conditions, that's a shout for joy. That's a shout of being found like no one else has. And I wonder, you know, as I'm picking up this line, the cheers of the forsaken, have I heard some of what you wanted to convey in this book, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think you captured it well, because it, it, it captures both God seeing us when we were lost, and yet God loved us anyway but also the call to do that for each other. Grace often comes to us through other people. And so when we hear the cries of the forsaken and respond to them with compassion and solidarity and grace, we're we're just doing what God does. And many times we are standing there as God's representative. And so that, to me, is what Cash did throughout his whole life with his music. And I think that is standing with and seeking out the cries of the forsaken to be good news to them, and also to be evangelized by them is really the gospel according to Johnny Cash. Well, Cash was born just at the tail end of the Depression. He grew up having his fingers scarred, picking cotton balls in a cotton field. He grew up at a time when there was war and the opportunity for him to serve in the military. And he, he grew up at a very particular time when country music could capture the heart and mind of a nation. Do you think that he was a product of his time, or do you think that it would be possible for someone like Johnny Cash to rise up today and have the same kind of impact in life that he had? That's a good question. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about his music, to go back to the album Bitter Tears, is how Cash sang a lot of very patriotic music during his life, a song is very positive about America, but he was also a man that could make a whole album of Native American protest songs, very critical of the government. And, and I kind of wonder if an artist that can do that is increasingly rare in our society, especially in the country music scene. It seems like today, any criticism of America is assumed to be unpatriotic, almost by definition. But here, Cash was a guy who could sing songs about loving America, but he could also be very critical of America. And I kind of think we need him again in this kind of political climate where you can both love your country and be critical of it. 
I don't know if there is an audience for that voice anymore. Um, my hope is that we would find such an artist that would help us navigate these murky waters. So maybe we need Johnny Cash more than ever. You just mentioned the word hope. And I guess my last question to you would be looking back at the life of Johnny Cash, looking back at, at this book that you have written that looks at the gospel according to Johnny Cash. I wonder if you could sum it up in one or two sentences. What is it about what you find in the work of Johnny Cash that keeps you buoyant, that gives you hope, that makes you feel like the best in humanity can still be found. What is it that keeps you hopeful in this project? I think it's his own struggles. I think people are attracted to Johnny Cash because they know he struggled and that he, they know he suffered and that he know he made mistakes. Uh, and yet he was somebody that we also admire uh, and somebody who comes to us with a story of grace. And so I think what we see in Cash is both his brokenness and his humanity, uh, but also the things we've been talking about, the ways he kept trying to reach for the light. And I think we identify with him. Um, he is not simply a sinner, and he is not simply a saint. He is a complex mixture, and it's in that complex mixture that we find our own stories. And it's interesting, I've talked about Johnny Cash to a lot of different audiences, and it's like everybody has their own on-ramp to Johnny Cash, a particular song that just really speaks to them. And I think that was his genius, his ability to kind of put his finger on the kind of human predicament and the human ache in a way that few artists have ever done. Well, Richard Beck, I went into reading this book thinking that I knew who Johnny Cash was. I mean, I lived in Nashville, I lived in Memphis, and I thought, oh, I've got this. I was so profoundly surprised by your book. I was moved by it. There were points where I wept reading parts of it. And I, I really just cannot say enough good things about this book. I think it's, it's tremendous both in what it tells us about Johnny Cash, but also how you've managed to really show the bright threads of the gospel. You, you mentioned kind of the, you know, even when, when things are broken, sometimes they can be fixed with kind of gold in the cracks. You really showed us the gold in the cracks of Johnny Cash. And I, I can't thank you enough for writing the book, but also I want to thank you for taking time to talk about it with me and my audience today. Oh, hey, that is a great endorsement. I appreciate it. It's exactly what I wanted to communicate. So, so glad you liked it. We've been speaking today with Richard Beck. He is professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. He's a popular blogger and speaker, and he's the author of several books, including the book Unclean. His published research also covers topics as diverse as the psychology of profanity and why Christian bookstore art is so bad. Beck leads a Bible study each week for inmates at a maximum security prison. And today we've been talking about his recent book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.